The first word comes from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 34, which say, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they reached the place that was called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Luke sets the scene for us for these six hours in which Jesus broke the silence seven times. He sets the scene by placing Jesus between two criminals in a place called the skull and on a Roman cross. So it was a place of sin, even criminality. It was a place of judgment. It was a place of punishment. It was a place of death. And in that place of sin and criminality and judgment and punishment and death, Jesus broke the silence first by praying, by praying to his father, calling him father and calling for forgiveness on those who were putting him to death. And by doing that, he was practicing what he preached because he preached that we should love our enemies and that we should pray for those who persecute us. And he prayed for them partly on the basis of their ignorance because he said, for they know not what they do. And when we go back to the Old Testament, we find that ignorance was a mitigating factor for sin in the Old Testament. It didn't excuse it, but it in some way reduced its heinousness and it kept it in the category of that which is forgivable. Peter mentioned this. Paul mentioned this. Peter mentioned this question of forgiveness or rather of ignorance when he was preaching to the Jews who had participated in the killing of Jesus. And he said, I know, brothers, that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. And then Paul later wrote and said that none of the rulers of of this age understood this, for if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And in fact, Paul referred to himself, his old life as a persecutor of the church. And he said, actually, the reason I did that was because of ignorance. He said, though formerly I was a, I was a, a blasphemer and I was a persecutor and I was a, an arrogant opponent, an insolent opponent, I received mercy because I acted in unbelief, the ignorance of unbelief. But ignorance is is not an excuse. Ignorance doesn't grant forgiveness in and of itself. The only way for you or for me or for anyone else to be forgiven is if somebody pays for our sins. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was not only praying that they would be forgiven, he was actually dying so that they could be forgiven. And we know that God answered his prayer that day. In at least a couple of cases, we know that at least one Jewish criminal and one Roman soldier received forgiveness that day. And we know if we keep reading the story that many multitudes of Jews and Gentiles received forgiveness later on. So sinner, take heart and go to Jesus. Because if those who crucified the Lord of glory could be forgiven, so can you. Here we're going to be in um, the passage that just follows, and Jesus is there on the cross with between two criminal, criminals. We're going to read Luke 23, 
39 to 43. And this is what it says. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This, is, this word paradise is one of only three places in the New Testament where it's used. And it should call to mind, if we know that it was used in the Old Testament, uh, God's original creation, his paradise that he made from Adam and Eve. And so I want to do a, a small recap. Um, what was this paradise? What was it like? Well, if we remember, God builds the heavens and the earth, and he forms man in his own image. It says that he breathed into him the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. And this was God's plan from the beginning, to be with his people in this garden paradise. But much too soon, humankind rebelled. They were exiled. And God placed what are called cherubim, angelic warriors, to guard the way back into paradise and to keep mankind from the tree of life. And so my question is, what does this have to do with our passage? Well, here in this passage and on this mountain of crucifixion, we actually see a representative subset of humanity outside of the Garden of Eden, outside paradise. So first, Luke shows us a man still in rebellion and mocking Christ, both respect to identity and with Christ's ability to save. He basically says, prove yourself. Aren't you the Christ, right? Save yourself and us. And Jesus was proving himself. He was dying for that man's sins, but he didn't have the faith to see it. The second man on the other side of the cross is where Luke spends most of his time. This man we often call and refer to him very often as the thief on the cross. And he believes. And so he turns to the first and begins to rebuke and basically evangelize him. And his argument goes like this. Number one is, don't you fear God? Don't you respect God? And don't you see that you're in the same boat as Jesus and myself? We're all hanging condemned on a cross. And number two, we justly deserve it, but Jesus has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. And so Luke shows us that we have a man in rebellion, we have a believer, and then we have Jesus, this new kind of humanity who's sinless and innocent, like back in the garden. And so this believing criminal turns to Jesus Christ, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this isn't like a forget-me-not kind of a situation. It's not just like think about me when you're up there. In the Bible, to remember someone is to, it's a covenantal concept. It's to appeal to God so that he'll act on one's behalf on according to his promises. And so we could translate what he said to Jesus this way. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, act on my behalf. Grant me your loving favor. That could be a way to put it. Or in Psalm 106.4 does it even better. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. And so how does Jesus respond to this believing criminal? He says, Amen. This guy basically preaches a sermon and Jesus says, Amen. That's true. Amen. And then he says something. Then comes the ultimate comfort. Today you will be with me in paradise. What sweet words. It's harder to imagine any sweeter. The whole plan of God wrapped up in this one phrase. You'll be with me in 
paradise. He would be with Jesus. He would be in paradise. And by faith, this man was following Jesus back into our long lost home with God. This broken man with simple faith became a picture of restored humanity. And as John saw in his vision in Revelation, it says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The third word from the cross is from John chapter 19, verses 26 through 27. Let's listen. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to the mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I've been uh, at the deathbed of a number of people, probably more than uh, many my own age, and I've uh, had to do my own fair share of funerals. And I'd love to report that families are at their best when someone is dying. Uh, But sadly, that's not true. Uh, You would think that even a dysfunctional family would kind of hold it together uh, for a mom or dad in the last hours of death, but I've often experienced just the opposite. Uh, The pain and heartache can often cause deeper divisions. It can often cause a family to fall apart. I've seen it. Now, when we remember Jesus' own final hours, we can remember that he's betrayed by his closest friends, those whom he had been with for three years closely. All of them scatter in his deepest need. One even denies that he knows him. In this passage here, we're encouraged that at least one of the 12 disciples slinks back, and there's a small group of women hanging at the foot of the cross. And when Jesus sees them, there's no word of rebuke, no scolding for them. It's actually a word of unity. Behold your son, your mother. See, in this last hour, Jesus is binding together those who are around him. When Jesus speaks to Mary, his mother, he doesn't actually call her mother. That might strike us as rude, but what he's doing is actually doing something much deeper. Jesus is speaking, Mary at least, as something more than a natural son. What's happening here is that you might say normal family bonds are being superseded. There's something greater. Uh, We use the phrase sometimes, blood is thicker than water. You might say that in your family. It is a way to say that our family relationships are most important. Well, as Christians, we actually agree. Blood is thicker than water, but it's not the family blood, you might say, that we're talking about, but the blood of Christ. See, at the shedding of his blood on the cross, a new family is being brought into being. It's a family being formed right there at the foot of the cross. See, Jesus died to form a family around him in his blood. It includes families, to be sure, but it's a family that will last even our natural families. This is the saving death of Jesus. Uh, What had unwound previously in sin and fear, now it's being put back together in these relationships. Now the human family is being restored. See, to follow Jesus to learn from him, to follow him to the cross, is to be in fellowship with other Christians, with other disciples. It means to be part of a family. There's actually a saying in church history that says, you can't have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. Or to quote a hymn that we often sing here actually at this church, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. 
from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died there's also a prayer that i've often read spoken at a good friday worship for over 500 years it's quite old it's been happening quite a while and it speaks to this point it's very short i want to read it It says almighty god we beseech thee graciously to behold thy family for whom the lord jesus christ suffered death amen beloved in christ look around behold your family amen the next word uh, from jesus on the cross is taken from mark 15 33 to 34 which reads the following and when the sixth hour had come there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour and at the ninth hour jesus cried with a loud voice eloi eloi lemma sabachthani which means my god my god why have you forsaken me? On February 15th, 1947, a guy by the name of Glenn Chambers was boarding a plane uh, to go to Quito, Ecuador to begin his ministry as a um, sort of uh, visual. He was, he was into the uh, visual arts and wanted to explore what Christianity looked like down there. Uh, unfortunately, the plane never made it. Right as it was coming in, it, it tumbled into a mountain and Glenn perished. Before he left the Miami airport, he wanted to write a note to his mom and tell her that he loved her. And the only piece of paper that he could find, the only stationery that he could find, was a, a letter with, with one word written in really big letters right in the middle, and it said, why? And so Glenn's mom, learning of her son's death a few days later receives this letter from her son and she opens it and there staring her in the faces is, is the word why along with his note of loving words to her and it's 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 natural i think the human condition to ask the question why my kids are really good at it dad why do i have to eat my vegetables uh, why can't i drive your car there's a lot of reasons for that. Why is your beard getting whiter and whiter? And throughout scripture, we see God's children are really good at asking the why question. Why is life so hard? Why can't we have another king like the other nations? Why isn't there more food to eat or, or water to drink? Why do we have so much suffering? In other passages, we, we see God's people asking the question, why do you seem so far away? Why, why is this relationship with you so painful and so distant at times? Why do you stand so far off? Why don't you do something? Most notably in Psalm 22, we find the exact same words in Jesus's lips here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus is quoting this passage. He doesn't just say it, but he yells it. He yells out this passage from Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? Imagine standing at the foot of the cross in total darkness and hearing this coming out of the lips of the Son of God being crucified. Why have you abandoned me? Why did this have to happen? I think this is an invitation for us to ask the same question. This isn't just Jesus's question. This is our question. Why did the father abandon his own son? 
just like Glenn Chambers' note to his mom, God has written a loving story around this word, why, as well. It's a loving message to us, to his children. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of his relentless pursuit of us. It's the story of grace and forgiveness that is now culminating in this moment on the cross. So why did the Father forsake Jesus? Well, the answer is because without doing so, he would not have redeemed us. The fifth word comes to us from John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. It's been said that the human being is a hungry animal. We have a pretty insatiable appetite, if you think about it. We eat and drink all the time. And when God made Adam and Eve in the garden in the beginning, he made them hungry, made them ready to eat. And he gave them something to eat, a garden full of delights. He gave them an appetite, and he gave them something to satisfy that. But sin and evil in the world came in, and that was about food as well. Driven from the garden, then humanity is still hungry, still thirsty, but with something less to satisfy the appetite. So it's fitting that as sin came in a garden, that sin now is overcome in a garden. And there's talk about food and drink again. Jesus, if you remember, refused to turn the, sto the bread, stones into bread. He said earlier that his true meat and drink was to obey the will of his Father. Whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink, he said. He preached that he was food and drink for the life of the whole world. So no longer does the human heart have to be tormented by hunger and thirst. But all of this had to come at a great cost, actually. See, what Jesus does is retrace Adam's steps back to the garden. So on the cross, he feels that gnawing hunger of broken humanity. He feels in himself a burning thirst. It's in a garden outside the city that the second Adam cries out, I thirst, I thirst. And from the beginning of the world until the ending of it, no one will ever have to thirst again. This lead up to the cross tells us why. See, there's all this talk leading up to the cross about cups and drinking. See, Jesus tells his disciples on the way that he has a cup that he's going to have to drink from, a cup of suffering and affliction. At the meal with his disciples as they're eating, Jesus takes a cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He says, I won't drink from the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus is on a fast. He's on a vow to complete the kingdom and then he will drink. See, then in the garden, he comes and he prays about a cup again, whether this cup could pass from him any other way without having to drink it. But he says, nevertheless, I will do the Father's will, drink the cup you give me. And that's what the cross is. See, Jesus refused the mixed wine, you might remember, at the very beginning of his crucifixion. He says he would not take it then. So he thirsted, and the cup that he did drink was the cup that God gave him, a cup of suffering. But here, 
in this passage, when it says he understood that all was now complete, what does he say? I thirst, I'm ready to drink. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so it came. He returned us to the garden. John's gospel even tells us how that wine came to his lips. He says it was on a hyssop branch. Seems like a throwaway line, a hyssop branch. But what was the hyssop branch? It was at the heart of Passover. The hyssop branch was what you smeared the blood on to be put on the doorposts. See, John is saying this is the Passover lamb in his blood, his blood spilt. That's how the kingdom of God is here. And even as we eat and drink tonight, the last words of the Bible call us to this kingdom. They call us tonight. Let the one who is thirsty come. Come to him. Drink and be satisfied. Amen. The sixth word of Christ on the cross comes from John 19.30, which says this. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's natural to wonder what the final words of someone are right before they die. Are they words of peace? Are they words of regret? Are they words of love? Um, are they words of anger? There, there's, there's an interest in this because the, the final words that someone might say right before they die act as a sort of summary of their life, of the, the feeling that they have in that moment. There's a power to them. And here we see in, in these last words of Jesus uh, a, a similar, though significantly greater power to his words. Because here, Jesus's last words are ones of victory. It is finished. It's a, it's, it's a phrase of triumph. In fact, it's, it's just a little Greek word that he says here. It's tetelestai, but it carries significant meaning. It means to fulfill, to bring to an end, or to completely pay off a debt. To say something is finished implies that there was a time when something wasn't finished, when, when it wasn't made whole. And in fact, this is the entire story of Scripture up to this very moment, a time in which sinful humanity is separated from God because of our sin. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we see God's people again and again saying over and over, How long, O Lord? How long must we wait for full redemption? How long will sin rule in our hearts? How long until our sorrows come to an end and are redeemed. Here, now, in this little Greek word, God brought this struggle to a close. No longer do people have to wait for that redemption. It is here. And in it, and in this victory, Jesus declares, it is finished. That wait, that longing is over. And it not only marks the end of the dark reign of death, but it also ushers in the light of life that we have in the gospel. And so we're called to echo the same cry of freedom and victory to ourselves as we preach the gospel to ourselves and to others as we preach the good news of the gospel to others and to one another here amidst the struggles of this life. And the, 
In those moments of despair, we can remember that in Christ, it is finished. In, in those moments when we are shamed for our sin and feel the weight of our sinfulness, we remember Christ's words when he proclaimed, it is finished. And to a desperate and needy world longing for answers and marred by brokenness, we can declare that sin does not reign, but repeat Christ's victorious words, it is finished in him. In these words, Christ didn't just sum up how he felt about his life. He summed up everything into himself. It is his, after all. He's not only conquered sin and death, but also reversed the course of mankind, bringing redemption and the way back to God, back to himself. And in that, we have freedom and rest. The last word comes in Luke 23, Uh, verses 44 to 46 and here it is it says it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two then jesus calling out with a loud voice said father into your hands i commit my spirit and having said this he breathed his last the section follows directly after my last passage that I read to you and spoke on where we have the we see the thief on the cross and his believing commitment to Jesus Christ and Jesus's response to him and if I could call that passage before if I could name it a, f- a little four, mer- four minute talk I'd call it paradise promised and if I could name this passage I'd name it paradise opened and I want to pay close attention to this and see how Luke shows us how paradise was opened Uh, for us and for that thief. So first, Luke says that at the sixth hour, darkness was over the entire land. And when you read a statement like this in scripture, just be ready for something cosmic, something cataclysmic, something apocalyptic. It's, It's this, whatever event is going to take place when there's darkness in the heavens or when the stars fall from the sky, it's world changing. It's world altering. And we even read in Amos chapter 8, and maybe Luke is drawing on this. It says, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. That's the sixth hour, by the way. And darken the earth in broad daylight, I will make it like the morning for an only sun. And that was the prophet Amos. But I think there's actually a more simple connection to what's going on here about the darkness and about the sun, and it's right here in our passage. And basically, it's this. It's that Jesus' own darkness and dying is mirrored in the sun's darkness and dying. The word for the sun being darkened or failing uh, most likely means that it's a word to fail or die out. Um, and we actually see this word in the Old Testament in Genesis thirty-five twenty-nine. And the place that we see it is where the patriarch Isaac is dying. It literally says, And Isaac breathed his last and was gathered to his people. This is the verb used when it's talking about the sun's light failing. And so literally, simultaneously, the sun itself could be said to be breathing his last as the Son of God is breathing his last. In John's Gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And if the light of the world goes out, then all the lights in the world go out with him. 
So as the world plunges into darkness, what does Jesus do? He quotes from the Bible. He quotes from Psalm 31, 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. But he adds something. He says, Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so we see Jesus, even as he's facing the darkness of death, he clings to God, his Father. But remember the thief on the cross. Don't forget him. If we imagine that conversation continuing into this passage, you know, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the man might have said, how, Jesus? I believe you, but but how is this going to happen? And this is why Luke tells us in this passage that the curtain was torn in two, right? Remember in Exodus, God commanded the people to weave certain images on this curtain. And what were those? They were cherubim, warrior angels. He said, I want you to weave cherubim into this curtain. And they were a reminder that as long as this curtain was up, the way back into God's presence was shut to all mankind. And so Luke tells us that this curtain with all the angels on it that reminded us, you can't come back in. It's that curtain that's torn in two and goes away. And so in the beginning, God breathes into Adam and he lives But now Jesus breathes out and dies and so becomes the new Adam. And guess what Jesus does? He puts those angels out of a job. He takes their place and now Jesus is the new Adam fulfilling his new role of guarding the heavenly sanctuary, watching it and keeping it. And guess what? Does he say, stay back? What does he say to everyone? In the whole world, come and let the one who hears say, Come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires and take the water of life without price. And so the promise still stands to the one who conquers, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And I speak to everyone here and anyone who can hear me come, come. The way is opened up. The door is open. Come, let's pray. Father, we approach you and we love you. We honor you. And we see that you have given Jesus for the life of the world, the light of the world. And Lord, it's almost hard to think about the light of the world dying and diminishing and dwindling out on that cross and crying, why have you forsaken me and crying, It is finished and saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What a dark moment. And yet we know that it was not finished. We know that each of us, Lord, if we'll see Jesus, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, that he'll look at each one of us and say, you will be with me in paradise. Lord, give us faith to believe it, even in those moments when we doubt. And Lord, would you draw us and feed us forever on Christ, feed us forever from the tree of life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.